The Self and Its Sources, Reflections on Virginia Woolf's The Waves, by Gil Bailey, produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 4. Now what we had to see is we had a kiss, and then we had Susan see the kiss, and the real dynamic begins at that point. And now we see the ripples. The kiss ripples out to Susan. Susan reacts. Her reaction ripples out to Bernard. Bernard's reaction ripples out to Neville. The whole thing starts to go out wider and wider. Bernard, who's in the tool shed carving little toy boats with Neville and with Susan and Rhoda, Bernard says, Susan has passed us. She was not crying, but her eyes, which are so beautiful, were narrow as cat's eyes before they spring. Now, if you need some indication that the devil has gotten into the garden, it's cat's eyes, see, snake's eyes. And suddenly she has cat's eyes. And they're red, but not red from crying, you see, but red from being like cat's eyes that are ready to spring. And Bernard says, I shall follow her, Neville. Now she walks across the field with a swing nonchalantly to deceive us. Then she comes to the dip. She thinks she is unseen. She begins to run with her fists clenched in front of her. Dissembling has begun. Out there where everybody's watching, she swings her arm. She's nonchalant, you see. But as soon as she's into the ditch, her fists are clenched in front of her. And she's running. And so Bernard gets up to follow her. The, story, the plot thickens, so to speak. And when he leaves, Neville has just been abandoned. So now... So Bernard has been smitten by this image of Susan and he leaves and Bernard now, I mean, and, and Neville now has to deal with the fact that he's just been abandoned by Bernard. And Neville says, where is Bernard? He has my knife. We were in the tool shed making boats and Susan came past the door and Bernard dropped his boat and went after her taking my knife. <laughs> The sharp one that cuts the keel. You could make it, there's certain metaphorical quality to that. And then he says about Bernard, which is absolutely true, of course, he says, he is like a dangling wire, a broken bell pull, always twangling. He is like a seaweed hung outside the window, damp now, now dry. Depending on what's happening in the atmosphere, the seaweed is either wet and full or dry and shriveled up. And that's, exa that's exactly Bernard. Whatever the influences are, he becomes it. And he looked up and there went Susan and off he went. There was no moment's hesitation. He simply followed. They go back outdoors and they go off in pairs. Virginia Woolf may be playing around here with the idea of pairs. Adam and Eve leave the garden as a pair. 
and that comes out very strongly in Milton's Paradise Lost, where they where they walk out of the garden hand in hand. Well, they go off in pairs. They leave this, go out into the in into the countryside in pairs, and there may be some sense of pairing here in a couple, several different ways. Uh, one is, for example. There is something in the God, in the biblical story of the fall. There is something that pairs with the Adam and Eve story, and that that has to go with it in order to explain it. And that's the Cain and Abel story. And surprisingly enough, there's a tiny little inexplicable echo of that in this story. They all go off in pairs except Neville, and he says, "I will use this hour of solitude to recover, if I can, by standing on the same stair halfway up the landing." What I felt when I heard about the dead man through the swing door last night when Cook was shoving in and out the dampers. He was found with his throat cut. The apple tree leaves became fixed in the sky. The moon glared. I was unable to lift my foot up the stair. So he had this epiphany of sorts on the stairs when he heard that there was a that a man had been murdered. And they go off in pairs and he goes to stand on that same stair to try to recover that feeling he had. And he re- he refers to the, his memory of that as death among the apple trees. They found the man with his throat cut. The apple tree leaves became fixed in the sky. So that an echo here of trees, apple trees, and death by murder. And Neville says, we are doomed, all of us, by the apple trees, by the immitigable tree which we cannot pass. And it's not the tree of death, it's the tree of murder. Now, it's inexplicable, it's just a little hint, but I, but it, it makes it interesting. It makes an interesting comparison with the biblical story. Okay, well, Bernard, as part two begins, Bernard, everybody's going off to boarding school. Bernard stands waving to his parents as he leaves for boarding school. So now we get this image of the wave as a kind of gesture of some kind of diaspora that's that's going on. At least that's how I read it. And Bernard, as he does a number of times in the novel, takes a deep breath and proclaims that the ceremony is over now in the sense that, oh, well, now li- now real life can begin. We're finally finished with the ceremonies. And this is a very modern idea, you know, that somehow if we could just get past these conventions and these ceremonies uh, and these customs, that somehow we would be free. And clearly what Bernard does is also typical of our age, which is he raises the coefficient of illusion to the next power. Anyway, he's the novelist. He's the one who turns experiences into words. But it's clear right away that he does so in order to ward off certain mimetic effects. He says, for instance, I must make phrases and phrases and so interpose something hard between myself and the stare of housemaids, the stare of clocks, staring faces, indifferent faces, or I shall cry. So he uses his words in the same way that Lewis uses his intellectual uh, accomplishments in order to ward off the mimetic effect of others. 
So now this is Bernard coming. He says this as he's coming up uh, to register for boarding school. And he looks up and he sees the other boys coming to register for boarding school. And he says, there is Lewis. There is Neville in long coats carrying handbags by the booking office. They are composed. And the whole problem of composure now comes up and, and is throughout. And the problem of composure is precisely that remaining composed has now become problematic. How to remain composed. That is to say, how to be able to be in the presence of others without being drawn out or drawn into some uh, mimetic entanglement. And that's what composure is. Well, here's what happens. By the way, again, to bring, you know, to bring back one of the old chestnuts that I always uh, refer to, in, in Eliot's Portrait of the Lady, you remember the man, in the, the speaker in Portrait of a Lady? He, he's primarily concerned with composure. He says, you will see me any morning in the park, reading the comics on the sporting page. Particularly, I remark, an English countess goes upon the stage, a Greek was murdered at a Polish dance, another bank defaulter has confessed. I keep my countenance. I remain self-possessed. He tries to remain self-possessed, by reading only the comics in the sporting page, but he can't do that because the stories that intrigue him, the English countess, the Greek murdered at a dance, and the bank defaulter, those are not found on the sporting or comics page. He can't resist these other sections of the paper, but he reads them. Nevertheless, he remains self-possessed. He's very proud of having remained self-possessed, even in the presence of these mimetic provocations. But the next line in the poem, he says, except... When a street piano, mechanical and tired, reiterates some worn-out common song with the smell of hyacinths across the garden, recalling things that other people have desired. And then he loses his composure, his self-possession. It's the same thing, and it's, that's written not too long before Virginia Woolf is meditating on this in this novel. Bernard sees Lewis and Neville, and he says, Ah, they are composed. The next, it, practically the next line, is Lewis, who's also coming to register for boarding school, speaking, obviously to himself. Here is Bernard. He is composed. He is easy. He swings his bag as he walks. I will follow Bernard because he is not afraid. So immediately, this is, this is the double feedback, you know. The whole thing is like a Meba strip. So he, Bernard has noticed that Lewis and Neville are composed, and so immediately he says, I, I will have to be composed. And so he strikes a composed posture, which is so convincing that Lewis, whom Bernard thought was composed, looks at Bernard and realizes he's really the composed one and realizes he's better copy Bernard because <coughs> Bernard is the composed one. And you, it's like, you know the mirrors going back how far back okay now I want to go to I want to use two scenes one in the girls school and one in the boys school and, and try to show the the religious nature of what's going on the headmistress in the girls school in, is Miss Lambert the headmaster in the boys school is Mr. Crane and when they first arrive Miss Lambert stands before the girls and uh, makes a presentation, and Mr. 
Crane Before the Boys. And it's an important moment, I think. Uh, I think Virginia Woolf has structured this interestingly. Rhoda, while Miss, while Miss Lambert is talking, Rhoda says the following. They're, by the way, they're all sitting there in uniform. She says, here I am nobody. I have no face. That's Rhoda's constant lament. I have no face. This great company, all dressed in brown serge, has robbed me of my identity. We are all callous, unfriendly. So what's she going to do about it? Her, she's, being, she's being dissolved in this undifferentiated mass. She's losing her distinction. So what is she going to do about it? And so much in this novel has to do with what are the strategies for preserving some kind of coherence, psychological coherence, in the midst of this dissolving. Rhoda says, I will seek out a face, a composed face, a monumental face, and I will endow it with omniscience, and I will wear it under my dress like a talisman. You see there? The need for, a, to use Christian jargon, the need for a Lord, the need for a, for a koan, the need for something to center this process and 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 give the the person personality some kind of core. So she says, "I will I will seek out a face, a composed face, a monumental face, endow it with omniscience, and wear it under my dress like a talisman." That's her solution to the problem. Jenny, sitting near her, looks and by the way. At the moment she says this, Miss Lambert is speaking in front of a portrait of Queen Alexandra. So she has before her these two possible faces that could become composed, monumental, and endowed with omniscience. So she may be gauging between these two faces as, as uh, candidates for this, for this uh, canonization process that she's determined to bestow on some face in order to stabilize her own experience. At least Rhoda understands what's at stake. Jenny, on the other hand, has this to say. That dark woman with high cheekbones, looking, of course, at Miss Lambert, that dark woman with high cheekbones has, a shiny, has on a shiny dress, like a shell, veined, for wearing in the evening. That is nice for summer, but for winter I should like a thin dress shot with red threads that would gleam in the firelight. Now this is what this is an example of what Girard calls negative imitation. And it's what happens what what we do all the time as a way of trying to show that we're not imitating. So she says, Oh, she has that kind of dress? Well, I really want this other kind. As though the whole as, ho- as though the whole world was on the subject of dresses, right? She has that kind of dress. I want this other kind of dress. Here's what Gerard says about it: Modern society is no longer anything but a negative imitation, and the effort to leave the beaten path forces everybody inevitably into the same ditch. <laughs> so we, because we don't want to be caught imitating, that's very important. So we flip it. See. Or we move it out to the side and say, oh, well, that's not really the kind I want. I want this kind because <laughs> I'm not imitating. 
It's, a, it, it's an example of raising the coefficient of illusion to the next power. And it's modern. It's what's happening in our world. But it, there's also a religious dimension of this we have to recognize. She says, once she has her red dress, then things will be different. She says, then when the lamps were lit, I should put on my red dress and it would be thin as a veil and would wind about my body and billow out as I came into the room pirouetting. It would make a flower shape as I sank down in the middle of the room on a gilt chair. But Miss Lambert wears an opaque dress that falls in a cascade from her snow-white ruffle as she sits under the picture of Queen Alexandra, pressing one white finger firmly on the page, and we pray. I wanted to. I have a little thing here about the prayer part of this because it's really a question. It's the question is still religious energy. What to do with religious energy? And for Jenny, praying is, a, is simply. I mean, the praying is. It's not an. It's not in her experience. So the idea of praying it doesn't make any sense. But meanwhile, what do we do with? that we in, we engage in more convoluted versions of of uh of homage uh to the model Tillich, i quoted last week said personality is not possible without faith jenny has chosen an alternative to prayer rhoda realizes that she has enough sense to realize she needs a model from outside the that world someplace a monumental faith but Jenny is determined not to have a model, and so she takes the f- first person she lays her eyes on, becomes her model. And she disguises that from herself by simply saying she wants a different kind of dress. The religious dimension of all this comes out more explicitly in the boys' version of this, which happens when when Mr. Crane gets up to speak to speak and read the Bible to the boys in the first session at school. And we get a comparison between how Lewis relates to all this and how Neville relates to all this. Lewis says, Now we march two by two, orderly, processional, into chapel. I like the dimness that falls as we enter the sacred building. I like the orderly progress. We file in, we seat ourselves, we put off our distinctions as we enter You get a sense that he just breathes a sigh of relief. You see, Christianity destroys distinctions just as powerfully as as the mimetic crisis, but in a different context. And so he's he's relieved. Finally, he can go into the chapel and it all falls away, and he's greatly relieved. And he's the Elliot figure, of course. He says, I like it now. When lurching slightly, but only from his momentum, Dr. Crane mounts the pulpit and reads the lesson from a Bible. He calls him Dr. Crane. It's very Elliot-esque as well, you see. He mounts the pulpit to read the Bible, and, and Lewis is in his element. He says, I rejoice. My heart expands in his bulk, in his authority. I recover my continuity as he reads. I become a figure in a procession. And that's what he wants, to be a figure in procession, 
to be part of something ancient that's moving through history. That's, that's what he wants. Now, for Virginia Woolf, there may be all kinds of irony in this, and mockery, but I think it's a tremendous passage about, the, about Christian experience. The idea of being in procession in the context of something bigger than oneself that is historical. Uh, that's, that's, so the identity comes not from something one does to distinguish oneself, but from one's participation in something momentous. And this is an aside, but I, as soon as I read this the other day, I knew I was going to have to figure out some way to share it with you. And so I looked for an opportunity, and this is as close as I came. Uh, I was reading an essay by uh, Richard Terdemont of, on Simone Weil. And Terdemont does an absolutely interesting thing. Where he compares, you know, uh, the big thing in philosophical circles and literary circles these days is deconstruction. And deconstruction is, is this uh, position, which is that uh, all meta-narratives, that is to say all paradigms, uh, must be challenged. And we must, uh, if we can only dispense with these meta-narratives that are so confining, you know, <laughs> then we can really be free. It's the last throwing off of, you know, the last little hint of some kind of... so. Illusion, yeah. If we can just get outside of these meta-narratives, then finally we can be who we... And, uh, and Terdemont compares the, the radicalism of Simone Weil with what he regards as the tepid posturing uh, pretension of, of, of radicalism on the part of the deconstructionists. And he says, you know, the 18th century revolutionaries were trying to uh, get rid of, uh, extricate themselves from the, from their own past. And he says, this is the line that I wanted to share with you. Uh, he said, essentially, the, the, the liberal project, uh, not liberal in the modern political sense, but the Enlightenment project, was to extricate ourselves from the past. And he says, the middle-class ideal of liberty which has animated much of the social project in the period since the French Revolution, is thus still very much alive in contemporary theory. Now, that won't mean much to you, but I think it's one of the most withering sentences I've ever read about deconstruction. In other words, the bourgeois idea of liberty, the superficial bourgeois idea of liberty, which is, if I could ever get rid of all these constraints, I could really be free. Terdemont says, the bourgeois idea of liberty is still very much at work in the most sophisticated of the modern, uh, fashionable philosophical theories. The reason that comes to mind here is because he says Simone Weil, on the contrary, hungered for determination. She had a hunger for determination. In this last big essay of hers, The Need for Roots, she said, you know, we, if you, you can't understand yourself you, you have to understand the past in order to understand yourself. You are part of a historical phenomenon. Something is happening in you and through you. And, that, and if you try to under, understand yourself isolated from that, you'll constantly live in self-delusion. 
something is moving. And that's why I think if we try to talk about the, the, the work of the paraclete in history, we get much closer to understanding each of our own personal experiences than we do if we try to differentiate and talk about, well, this happened to me when I was thin, this, that, and the other. Those might be part of it, but the bigger part is the, is the undercurrent. And I, I, I call attention to that because here's Lewis in chapel thinking, oh, now I feel part of a procession. But while he's feeling that, Neville, who's sitting next to him, is having a modern experience. Neville says, glaring up at Mr. Crane, Neville says, the brute menaces my liberty when he prays. Unwarmed by imagination, his, world, his words fall cold on my head like paving stones, while the gilt cross heaves on his waistcoat. The words of authority are corrupted by those who speak them. I jibe and mock at this sad religion. And there's truth in his words, you know. It's not as though he's... It's very possible. See, what we could... In order to give Neville the benefit of the doubt, we could say, well, let's assume that the headmaster is a windbag. That's what Neville assumed. Let's assume that's true. It didn't keep Lewis from, from uh, happily dispensing with his, with his distinctions and from feeling himself, himself to be part of a procession. But it kept Neville from experiencing that because Neville just focused on this windbag. And uh, he saw it as something cramping his freedom. For Lewis, it was the ticket to freedom. For Neville, it was something that cramped his freedom. And there you have the whole problem in the modern world. And it reminded me, I have to invoke Jeremiah here. The question, because I want to show here, uh, Jeremiah says, it is long ago now since you broke your yoke, burst your bonds, and said, I will not serve. Yet, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you have lain down like a harlot. In other words, loudly announcing, hey, I'm going to be free of all of this, and it's only a matter of time before the, the, the worst kind of slavishness. Uh, comes about, bowing down to, to uh, absolutely the most trivial of idols. Well, there's also that in this story. Neville says the prayer cramps his freedom. Okay, so now prayer is not there, which means transcendence is not there. So Neville is now going to live in a world without transcendence. The question is, what's he going to do with his need for for what Tillich called an ultimate concern. What's he going to do with his ultimate concern? How's, how's the religious impulse going to function now in a world with no transcendence? He's not willing to look up to even the physical thing here. He's not willing to look up because up there is the guilt cross and the message in the Bible and Mr. Crane, who's a windbag, and maybe behind him the cross and the stained glass or whatever it is. But he's not willing to look up there because Mr. Crane's a windbag. So now where's he going to look? He has to look 
horizontally. And this is where the, the idolatry sets in. So it, it happens right after that. Neville says, I will lean sideways as if to scratch my thigh, so I shall see Percival. There he sits, upright among the smaller fry. He breathes through his straight nose rather heavily. His blue and oddly inexpressive eyes are fixed with pagan indifference on the pillar opposite. He's magnificent. But what has Neville done? He has rejected all that, and now he's looking around to see where the object of ultimate concern is. And he says, of, of, first of all, he sees nothing, he hears nothing. He is remote from us all in his pagan universe. But look, he flicks his hands to the back of his neck. For such gestures, one falls hopelessly in love for a lifetime. You know, Neville's the homosexual. He falls in love with Percival. So he, he says, just look at that. He flicks his hand to the back of his neck. <laughs> Dalton, Jones, Edgar, and Bateman flick their hands to the back of their necks likewise. But they do not succeed. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that incredible? <laughs> the gesture, you see, the typical Percival gesture is so powerful. All they have to do is follow the influence and that everybody starts making the gesture. We all do this, you know. But here, here it is, and he realizes that they, that they can't do it. Only, he, only Percival can really do that because he's Percival, that's all. By the way, this is the moment which corresponds exactly to that moment I tried to describe last week or and the week before, uh, when in the Toltec culture, Tezcatlipoca is up. I mean, uh, Quetzalcoatl is up here. He's presiding at his rituals, and suddenly here comes Tezcatlipoca, and everybody turns around and begins to look at Tezcatlipoca. Look, he's interesting. He's fascinating. So it's the the evaporation of transcendence and the looking around the social realm, see? And then the whole nomadic thing starts wildly going. At the beginning of the book's third section, there's the following. The sun rose. In the garden, the birds had sung erratically and spasmodically in the dawn on that tree, on that bush. Now they sang together in chorus, shrill and sharp. Now together, as if conscious of companionship. Now alone, as if to the pale blue sky. Also, they sang emulously in the clear morning air, swerving higher over the elm tree, singing together as they chased each other, escaping, pursuing, pecking each other as they turned high in the air, and then tiring of pursuit and flight. Lovely they came descending, delicately declining, dropped down, and sat silent on the tree, on the wall, with their bright eyes glancing, and their heads turned this way, that way, awake, aware, intensely conscious of one thing, one object in particular. So all of this mimetic, this field of mimetic interaction does its dance and then it comes down and it focuses on one thing and that one thing is Parsifal. Parsifal 
is what passes for tra a transcendent figure in this story. And Lewis says, look now how everybody follows Percival. His magnificence is that of some medieval commander. Look at us trooping after him, his faithful servants, to be shot like sheep, for he will certainly attempt some forlorn enterprise and die in battle. My heart turns rough. It abrades my side like a file with two edges. One, that I adore his magnificence. The other, that I despise his slovenly accents. I, who am so much his superior, I am jealous. So there you have it. It's like Susan sa saying, I love and I hate. And Parseval is the sort of natural man, the, the, uh, the old anthropos simple-minded uh, jock who loves to just play sports. And when he prays, he says, God, help us win. That's what Neville said. <laughs> he says, I know what he's praying right now. He's praying, God, help us win. And he's just, and they're so amazed, you know, by this guy who's not caught up in their, in the mimetic tangle. So Neville says, we all feel Parsifal lying heavy among us. His curious guffaw seems to sanction our laughter. But now he has rolled himself over in the long grass. He is, I think, chewing a stalk between his teeth. He feels bored. I, too, feel bored. <laughs> Back to the girls for a second. You get... Lewis says, I, he's magnificent, I love him, and uh, I feel tremendous malice towards him because he's stupid. Susan begins to show some faint signs. This is the underground man's disease. Remember the underground man? Resentment. It's the constituent principle of the modern age. And Susan begins to show some instance of this. And again, it's related to the lack of transcendence. Susan says, Each night I tear off the old day from the calendar and screw it into a ball. I do this vindictively while Betty and Clara are on their knees. I do not pray. I revenge myself upon the day. I wreak my spite upon its image. Now, all you can say there is that they're side by side. The two things, the, the, deter, the conscious, determined, willful refusal of transcendence and the spirit of revenge, the spirit of vengeance, the spirit of resentment. I do not pray. I revenge myself upon the day. I want to do a little thing and, and close that has to do with mirrors because the whole story has to do with mirrors. Rhoda says... That is my face in the looking glass behind Susan's shoulder. That face is my face. But I will duck behind her to hide it, for I am not here. I have no face. Other people have faces. Susan and Jenny have faces. They are here. Their world is the real world. They laugh, really. They get angry, really. While I have to look first and do what other people do when they have done it. It's a confession of what's going on. 
She says, see now with what extraordinary certainty Jenny pulls on her stocking simply to play tennis. Notice it's the certainty of it, namely the composure, the clarity. Certainty here, as with the word composure, simply means somebody who is not doing it for mimetic reasons. The idea, that's why everybody is so fascinated by Parseval. To, to, the goal is to find somebody that's not living for, as a mimetic slave. And so she says, see with what extraordinary certainty Jenny pulls on her stockings simply to play tennis. I admire that. But I like Susan's way better. For she is more resolute and less ambitious of distinction than Jenny. Both despise me for copying what they do. She likes Susan. Now this is raising the coefficient of illusion to the next power. She likes Susan because Susan, Jenny pulls on her stockings with tremendous certainty, and that's very impressive. But Susan pulls on her stockings with equal certainty, and Susan is not as aware of the fact that she's drawing attention to herself as she's doing it. Therefore, she likes Susan's way better. In other words, one likes the best the mimetic influence that's not aware of itself as a mimetic influence. Therefore, in order to become the object of other people's admiration, which is the name of the game, I have to do, I have to perform something that is uh, composed and certain and, and, and uh, that, that seems not to have any mimetic influences. And I have to perform it in such a way that I give the clear indication that I'm not interested in other people watching me. So this is raising the coefficient of illusion to the next power. It becomes mirrors and mirrors and mirrors. The opening to part three contains the following lines. Now too the rising sun came in at the window. The looking glass whitened its pool upon the wall. The real flower on the windowsill was attended by a phantom flower. Yet the phantom was part of the flower, for when the bud broke free, the paler flower in the glass opened the bud too. So it's another echo of this strange house of mirrors that this novel is. And I think it's incredible. And the one new thing I want to bring to it, I say new because it's not, I don't think ever discussed in terms of Virginia Woolf, is the though it's implicit in her, is the, is the fact that this is religious energy. There's a, it's the, the, the desperation that's comes that's behind all this has to do with the depth of these needs. And they're not merely social needs. They're religious ones. They're having to be played out in a world with no transcendence. And that's what makes it so, so explosive. Sometimes the reaction people have to uh, Girard's work, uh, when they when they learn about mimetic desire and the whole sociodrama that it generates, is how could something this obvious be this momentous? If it's that obvious, why has it taken us this long to recognize it, or at least to designate it as something of primary significance in 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 the task of understanding who we are? Of course, it hasn't taken us this long. There are lots of 
uh, versions of this all through human experience, uh, particularly in the literary field. It's, it's all over Homer, for example. Shakespeare is nothing but this, which is what uh, Girard has, has demonstrated in his book on Shakespeare, uh, and so on and so forth. The, the novels, which is where Girard himself got his start, uh, they exhibited, as the novel we're looking at does, and so on, and the Bible. The Bible is filled with it as well. It begins with it, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, and it uh, and it goes all the way through. It's there in the Passion story, so it's it's everywhere, and it was just waiting to be thematized. And Gerard, as I said, spends a lot of his time trying to prove that he's not original by finding uh, examples of people who were onto this before he was. One of those people I came upon not too long ago, uh, Gregor Lukacs, who is a theoretician of some kind. He made the observation in an essay entitled The Ideology of Modernism. He observed that the modern self is unstable and he, he tried to analyze that from the point of view of uh, literature and so on. Lukacs says, for example, when he tries to understand the instability of the modern self, he says modern subjectivity oscillates between melancholy and fascination. And this melancholy, he says, becomes tinged eventually with contempt. As this is taking place, Lukacs says, the human personality is disintegrating. Another voice that we could add to the uh, chorus of voices that I've tried to uh, assemble that are pointing more or less to the same social and psychological problematic is the anthropologist Branislav Malinowski. And Malinowski, by the way, Malinowski was influential uh, during the period of time when Girard was assimilating the anthropological uh, literature. And in one of his important books, Malinowski says this, in all his social and worldly ambitions, in all his strivings to catch good fortune and trap propitious luck, man moves in an atmosphere of rivalry, of envy, of spite. For luck, possessions, even health, are matters of degree and comparison. And if your neighbor owns more cattle, more wives, more health, and more power than you yourself, you feel dwarfed in all you own and all you are. And such is human nature that a man's desire is as much satisfied by the thwarting of others as by the advancement of himself. In this sociological play of desire and counter-desire of ambition in spite of success and envy, there corresponds the play of magic and counter-magic, or of magic, black and white, end quote. What Malinowski uh, calls here magic is simply the archaic... He's, he's writing about an archaic culture. He spent a lot of time in archaic cultures. When he's talking about magic, he's simply talking about the archaic way of trying to stabilize a fundamentally unstable situation. What is unstable is what he calls the sociological play of desire and counter-desire. And that, the stabilizing that, uh, that play is what culture is all about. Because the, the ravages of that process are such that pretty soon it will become chaos and violence. And the traditional form of stabilization, which Girard has pointed to, is scapegoating violence. It polarizes the whole situation 
around this formula unanimity minus one and restores order. Those cultures under biblical influence have been less and less able to resort to that stabilizing uh, uh, mechanism, and so they have become increasingly unstable. And the psychological uh, experience of people living in those cultures has uh, likewise become unstable to the extent that the, that the pl- soci- sociological play of desire and counter-desire uh, goes on unabated. And this novel is taking a look at a social, a, a little cameo, social cameo, in which the sociological play of desire and counter-desire is running its course. So back to the novel. At the beginning of section four, I think it's section four, they're not numbered and I get confused, but you know, there's italicized sections in this novel. The progress of the day and the progress of the life of the characters in this novel is getting on a bit. It's now, they're now no longer uh, young people, they're in their adult years. And already consequences are occurring, consequences of their uh, mimetic entanglement. And these can no longer be ignored. And so you get a hint of that, uh, of a kind of urgency setting in at the beginning of part four. And it reads as follows. The sun, risen, bared its face and looked straight over the waves. The waves, of course, are the, are, are the, uh, are, are the personalities in this novel. They are... They are the selves in this novel that rise up out of the undifferentiated mass and chase one another, pursue one another until they, until they uh, crash on the beach. They fell with a regular thud. They fell with a regular thud. They drew in and out with energy the muscularity of an engine which sweeps its force out and in again. And it's interesting to me you have this combination of muscularity and engine. Uh, and the, the, the idea that it's, that the engine idea is mechanical, you know, that it simply goes on like a, like a machine. You know, Simone Weil talks about the mechanism uh, of, of gravitation, something as mechanical as gravitation takes over. And Girard uses the term mechanism to try to deal with the mimetic dynamics. So that's interesting. Okay, anyway, the point is that, the, that now uh, the waves are falling with a regular thud. Then you have the, something that counteracts the thud. You know, when the, when the waves start falling with a thud, uh, those who haven't experienced the thud yet, but who begin to realize its imminence, uh, begin to react to it. They respond to the possibility that they, they too might experience this falling thud. And so you have the metaphor that attends this, which is back to the metaphor of the garden and the birds. It goes like this. In the garden, the birds sang in the hot sunshine, each alone. Each sang stridently with passions, with vehemence, as if to let the song burst out with harsh discord. Each, in a way, is crowing his or her own song uh, with a kind of frenzy. Their round eyes bulged with brightness, their claws gripped the twig or rail. 
So the bulging eyes and the claws gripping, is a, this is psychological, obviously a psychological metaphor for a state of mind that corresponds, as Virginia Woolf is trying to point out, with this stage in the process. And then it says, Then they descended, dry-beaked, ruthless, abrupt. They swooped suddenly from the lilac bough or the fence. They spied a snail and tapped the snail against a stone. They tapped furiously, methodically, until the shell broke and something slimy oozed. Now, what is this shell that's breaking? Well, I think this is the place in the novel where we begin to see the, the self is uh, is uh, disintegrated. There's evidence of that, actually, because later on, Bernard says the following. We sung like eager birds, each his own song, and tapped with the remorseless and savage egotism of the young, our own snail shell, till it cracked. So clearly, and that's you know many pages later in the novel, but clearly what we're talking about is the cell, is the is the personality cracking open under the strain of this whatever this dynamic is, and that so what it is we have to take a look at. From this moment on in the novel, we have all the characters trying to respond to the problem of instability, psychological instability in the first instance, so social instability, and so on. So everybody is now going to adapt some strategy for stabilizing the situation on their own terms. When Bernard says, we sung like eager birds and so on, and uh, we tapped with remorseless and savage egotism of the young, our own snail shell, till it cracked, in parentheses right after the word cracked is... I am engaged. And Bernard hopes that marriage will, like all the king's horses and all the king's men, somehow put Humpty Dumpty back together again. This is so typical of the modern world. You know, in the modern world, we only have one sacrament left. And we work the poor thing to death. We use it for every sacramental need we have. We have, we have become so... You know, the, you know the old cliche about the Eskimos have 40 words for snow? Uh, we have become so sacramentally deprived that we don't know anything about sacramental life. We only have one, and it's, it's losing its sacramental... Uh, in, the, in the ordinary way in which it's used, it's losing its sacramental efficacy because probably, among other reasons, we've overused it. We don't have any others. So every time we have a sacramental need, we get married <laughs> or unmarried or something. We, we mess around with that sacrament. It's the only one we have. And um, so we need forgiveness, you know. We need absolution. We need confirmation, whatever it is. We get married or unmarried. Well, this is Bernard, and he, he cracks finally cracks the snail shell of his, of his own... Self and it starts to ooze. You know, the hope was that there'd be some, some uh, golden shimmering thing there. You know, some great marvelous thing. It was not. It just be, some slimy thing began to ooze, and he thought, "Well, I'll get married." And uh, so he hopes, and he says, in one place, a little bit earlier, he says, "I, 
who have been since Monday when she accepted me, changed in every nerve with a sense of identity, who could not see a toothbrush in a glass without saying, my toothbrush, now I wish to unclasp my hands and let fall my possessions and merely stand here in the street taking no part, watching the omnibuses without desire, without envy. This is the hope, you see. Remember up here this passage I quoted where it says, these birds, their, their round eyes bulged with brightness, their claws gripped the twig or rail. The round eyes bulging with brightness must be desire and envy. And Bernard says he's going to do without that. The gripping of the twig and the rail must be something like the clasping that, that Bernard says he wants to s stop doing. So you have to hear the echo of what's going on here. He's responding to this situation and now he, he hopes that this will cure him, that he will get married and then he will not walk around somebody who is constantly desiring and envying. It doesn't work. And so later on, after the marriage and after it only did, if, if that, what marriage does and not what something else might do, he finds himself just in the same fix. And so he goes through another transition. Bernard is like a mo all moderns, perfectly willing to go through transitions as long as, as uh, there's always a promise of some other transition at the end. And if this one doesn't work, we can go to another one and so on. So he's happy to go from one to another. And so later on he says, with somewhat of a sobering tone of voice, I think, he says, time lets fall the drop. The drop fell. He was working in his office, he says, that day when the drop fell. He says, the drop fell as I buttoned up my coat to go home. I said more dramatically, I have lost my youth. I am not as gifted as at one time seemed likely. So he has this, suddenly, his life, his form of adaptation is this like little drop that slowly gets bigger and bigger until it gets so big it drops. And then that doesn't work anymore. He realizes he lost his youth. He's not as talented as he thought. So now what? Bernard says, Let us begin this new chapter and observe the formation of this new, this unknown, strange, altogether unidentified and terrifying experience, the new drop which is about to shape itself. He starts all over again with no fundamental change in his approach. Same song, second verse. So now we look at all of these figures, but that's just Bernard, and there's more, a lot more about Bernard, but that, I think, applies to all these figures. It becomes, it becomes alarmingly unstable, and all of them try to stabilize it in their own way. And one of the most interesting and humorous really is Jenny and Jenny is the social flit she's the sensual one Jenny takes great care to put herself in the middle of all other observers she great, takes great care to become what, uh, what uh, Shakespeare said of Hamlet the observed of all observers and she does this in social settings and she does it with her, her good looks and her sexuality and so she prepares for an evening, a social evening, and here's the description of the preparation. Jenny speaking. 
Night is beginning. I feel myself shining in the dark. Silk is on my knee. My silk legs rub smoothly together. Stockings, for the women in this novel, stockings is a major leitmotif. And we'll come back to that again and again. Stockings are a major leitmotif. So anyway, she's got the perfect ones on, no doubt. She says, The stones of the necklace lie cold on my throat. My feet feel the pinch of shoes. I sit bolt upright so that my hair may not touch the back of the seat. I am arrayed. I am prepared. This is the momentary pause, the dark moment. The fiddlers have raised their bows. She's ready. She is ready. Now, this is totally exaggerated in the same way that the underground man is exaggerated, but it is an exaggeration of, A, of something that is, that is everywhere in the modern world, and secondly, it is an exaggeration of something which by, nat- by its nature tends to become more exaggerated. There is a kind of built-in escalation in the whole dynamic of mimetic desire. So the fact that it's exaggerated, it's no... You know, this is a 1931 exaggeration. You can pick up the morning paper and find things that make this look like Ozzie and Harriet. So it's, it's only an exaggeration depending on where we are in this crisis. So anyway, back to Jenny for a second. Je- cars drive up as Jenny's preparing for this social event. She hears that the cars drive up and she says, I glance, I peep, I powder. I glance, I peep, I powder All is exact, prepared My hair is swept in one curve My lips are precisely red I am ready now to join men and women on the stairs My peers on the stairs I pass them, exposed to their gaze as they are to mine Like lightning we look But do not soften or show signs of recognition Our bodies communicate. This is my calling. This is my world. Everybody else is a tourist in this world. Jenny is a native in this world. And what she plays this little game, Jenny plays this little game, which is she can sit, she is the unmoved mover in the center of all this, so she can sit and uh, and sometimes just as a way of uh, entertaining herself, she will look around until she will see that some uh, interesting-looking young man, and she will then just, with her eyes, try to uh, uh, get him to come over and talk to her. With just her, just her eyes. And she said, I can do this. I just give them a certain look, and they peel away from their friends, and they're over there chatting with me right away. And so she, there, there's several examples of this in the book, but here's one of them. I say to this one, come. One breaks off from his station under the glass cabinet, He approaches. He makes towards me. This is the most exciting moment I have ever known. The one who is coming is melancholy, romantic. And I am arch, fluent, and capricious, for he is melancholy, romantic. In other words, if he's melancholy and romantic, then I have to be be capricious because that's, that's how that plays. That's the nature of that particular dynamic and the big one of the uh, the other motifs in this book is this the idea of the door opens and then depending on how you relate to this scene the social scene 
you, you the door opens and, and you have the experience of enormous anticipation or of absolute horror that, you know, one more person is coming to this, to this uh, devouring experience. And that's the difference between Ginny and Rhoda. I'll get to that in a second. So the idea that the door opens, for Ginny she says the door opens, the door goes on opening. Now I think next time it opens, the whole of my life will be changed. Who comes? She, she's ready. There are those lines in Yeats where he says, I know, although when looks meet, I tremble to the bone. The more I leave the door unlatched, the sooner love is gone. Well, Jenny doesn't know that. She loves the opening door. This is what she lives for, is the potentiality of that. So she says, who comes? But it is only a servant bringing glasses, an old man. I should be a child with him. And there, a great lady. With her, I should dissemble. And there, there are girls my own age for whom I feel the drawn swords of an honorable antagonism. For these are my peers. Well, you have the whole thing there. What I'm trying to do is give some feeling for the kind of instability and, uh, and desperation and attempt to stabilize the situation. And in this, at the same social event, Rhoda is having an, an entirely different experience. Rhoda says, I shall hide behind them as if I saw someone I know, but I know no one. The door opens. The tiger leaps. The door opens. Terror rushes in. Terror upon terror pursuing me. The door opens and people come. They come towards me, throwing faint smiles to mask their cruelty, their indifference. Rhoda says, here, twisting the tassels of this brocaded curtain in my hostess's window, I am broken into separate pieces. I am no longer one. I am to be cast up and down among these men and women like a cork on a rough sea. She, she, is, she, she realizes it's going to tear her apart. And Jenny realizes the only way to keep from having it tear you apart is get to get to the center of it and have everybody look at you. It's not, it won't happen, of course. It's the worst kind of psychological dismemberment that takes place under those circumstances. Remember Marilyn Monroe, Elvis Presley? I mean, you talk about dismemberment, that's where it really takes place. Uh, but, our, but the myth is that the dismemberment that Rhoda is feeling on the periphery will be cured if we can get into the center. As I said last week, Rhoda's a, a method for stabilizing this situation is to have one model. She says, I have no face, and therefore I will seek out a face, a composed, monumental face, and endow it with omniscience and wear it under my dress like a talisman. That's her hope for stabilizing the situation, to identify herself with a, a, a monumental, omniscient, and composed face. It doesn't work. The, the mimetic stimuli are too powerful. And so later, Rhoda says, and this is the passage that I quote so often and I quoted last fall, Rhoda says, I have no end in view. There is no single sense, no body for me to follow, and I have no face. She has no model that she can follow without falling into some kind of fierce 
rivalry and jealousy and resentment and all the rest of it. And I have no faith. Just right after that, she says, I wish above all things for lodgment, which is a curious word, really. But I, th I think one has to read that in terms of Augustine. Not that, that Virginia Woolf had Augustine in mind, mind you, but Augustine says, we are made for God, our, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And Rhoda, who says, I have no face, I have no end in view, I have no single scent, no body to follow, therefore I have no face. And she longs for lodgment, which I think means what Augustine means. And she says, since I long for lodgment, I pretend, as I go upstairs, lagging behind Jenny and Susan, to have an end in view. I pull on my stockings as I see them pull on theirs. I wait for you to speak, then speak like you. So she, she's slavishly imitated of those who seem to her to have some end in view. Now I want to go to Bernard and Neville and their way of trying to stabilize the situation. And all these attempts to stabilize it create more instability, of course. But in doing that, I want to show the echo here with between Virginia Woolf's novel and Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground. I have no idea if there's any explicit um, influence, but I think that it's very likely that there is because the center, you could say, if not the center, certainly an important episode in the, underground, in the Notes from Underground, is the party that is given for the classmate who is departing for a, for a foreign post. And at the center of this novel is a party that is given for Percival as Percival is going off to India. And, moreover, the, in Dostoevsky's novel, the underground man goes to the party and he insults everybody and makes a fool of himself. And the next morning he decides, decides to write a letter to the host of the party, making everything okay again. And here's what he says about his letter. He says, To this hour I am lost in admiration when I recall the truly gentlemanly, good-humored, and especially candid note of my letter. I was especially pleased with that certain lightness, almost carelessness, strictly within the bounds of politeness, however, which was suddenly reflected in my style. There is, after all, even an aristocratic playfulness about it, I thought admiringly as I read over the letter. He was so pleased to have written a letter that seemed to be spontaneous. <laughs> and he had taken tremendous pains to write such a letter. He had, he had gone to no length to make sure that it had that quality. Now, so now we go to Bernard. Remember, Neville said of Bernard, Neville and Bernard know each other very well because they're quite similar. And they both use the opportunity for knowing each other as an excuse for not knowing themselves because they are so similar. So Neville understands Bernard. Bernard is, t is a totally mimetic creature. Neville says he's like seaweed, you know, when, and you, if, if, if he's in the water or in someplace damp, it gets wet, 
And if he's in a dry environment, it dries up and shrivels. That's just the way he is. Whatever's going on, he picks it up. He is it. And so Bernard is such, like all people who are slaves to the mimetic influence, he longs more than anything for spontaneity. We live in a world where the, the reigning myth is the myth, well, two, it has two facets, I guess. It would be the myth of the autonomous individual, that is to say the individual who is not influenced by others. And part of that, or the other side of that myth, is the myth of the spontaneity of desire. Real desire, you know, the good kind, the kind you can really trust, comes right from you and doesn't come from anybody else. Was that thing of Blake's where Blake says, uh, "Those who control desire, those who not he doesn't say control, something, but it's like that. It's not exactly the word control, but Blake says something to the effect: those who control desire do do so because theirs is weak enough to be controlled. It's such a such a romantic thing, you know." Well, this idea that spontaneous desire is the source of all real uh, vitality, you know, this is part of it. So the more, the, the more one is a slave to the mimetic influence, the more one longs for spontaneity. And the more one will go out of his way to demonstrate to himself and others that he's being spontaneous and will even carefully work on this as the underground man did. It take great pains to be able to pull this spontaneity off. It's such a... It's raising the coefficient of illusion to the next power. So here's... Now, is there... Does Dostoevsky have an influence here? I don't know, but here's what happens. Bernard goes home, goes to his room, and he says, Now, as proof of my susceptibility to atmosphere, here, as I come into my room and turn on the light and see the sheet of paper the table, my gown neg- lying negligently over the back of the chair, I feel that I am that dashing yet reflective man, that bold and deleterious figure who, lightly throwing off his cloak, seizes his pen and at once flings off the following letter to the girl with whom he is passionately in love. Ah, oh, flings off this letter. That's what he wants to do, is to fling off this letter. And he knows now is the right moment. He says, All is propitious. I am now in the mood. I can write the letter straight off, which I have begun ever so many times. I have just come in. I have flung down my hat and my stick. I am writing the first things that come into my head without troubling to put the paper straight. It is going to be a brilliant sketch, which, she must think, was written without pause, without an erasure. Look how unformed the letters are. There is a careless blot. All must be sacrificed to speed and carelessness. I write in a quick, running, small hand, exaggerating the downstroke of the Y and crossing the T thus with a dash. <laughs> you know, this, this is like, this is the hysterics version of the Palmer method. <laughs> he's going to great lengths to show that he's not going to great lengths. <laughs> He says, the date shall be only Tuesday the 17th and then a question mark. You know, what month? What year? Who cares? We're, we're in the moment now. <laughs> but also I must give her the impression that though he, for this is not myself, 
is writing in such an offhand, such a slapdash way, there is some subtle suggestion of intimacy and respect. I must allude to talks we have had together, bring back some remembered scene. But it must seem to her, this is very important, to be passing from thing to thing with the greatest ease in the world. I shall pass from the service for the man who was drowned, I have a phrase for that, to Mrs. Moffat and her sayings, I have a note of them, and so to some reflections apparently casual but full of profundity, profound criticism is often written casually, about some book I have been reading, some out-of-the-way book. I want her to say, as she brushes her hair and puts out the candle, where did I read that? Oh, in Bernard's letter. Now, first, just to catch a little thing here. When she brushes her hair and puts out the candle, this is 1920, 1930. Who's putting out candles? Suddenly you have a hint. Wait a minute. Where'd the candle come in? The candle belongs to the 19th century, the early 19th century. Candles? She's blowing out candles? Wait a minute. Okay, hold on. Watch. Then he says, It is the speed, the hot molten effect, the lava flow of sentence into sentence that I need. Who am I thinking of? Byron, of course. I am in some ways like Byron. Now, Byron, you see, in Byron... The, the ladies would brush their hair and blow out the candle. So now we see. And I am in some ways like Byron, he said. Perhaps a sip of Byron will help put me in the vein. Let me read a page. There's no pause in Wolf's text here, but clearly Bernard goes to the shelf, picks out his copy of Byron's Don Juan, and inhales <laughs> a little bit <laughs> to try to get it, Right? But it had, unfortunately, he he does he compares unfavorably to to Byron. So, at first, it has the opposite effect. He says, "No, this is dull. This is scrappy. This is rather too formal." Now I'm getting the hang of it. Now I'm getting his beat into my brain. The rhythm is the main thing in writing. Keep that in mind. Rhythm is very important in this novel because it. Rhythm represents getting oneself in step with the model. For Virginia Woolf, rhythm is a very important uh, marker in this novel. And for Bernard, rhythm is the main thing in writing. And he's trying to get in rhythm with Byron. Now, without pausing, I will. he, he feels like he is now finally in rhythm. So he says, now, without pausing... I will begin on the very lilt of the stroke. 